This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. This week, CJR's Meg Dalton spoke with Caitlin Dickerson about her illuminating piece on the effects of fake news on real people. Dickerson is an immigration reporter at The New York Times. She spent the last year interviewing residents of Twin Falls, Idaho, about how one story turned their world upside down. For those who haven't read it, what's the gist of your most recent story? My story looked at the human impact of fake news. And so for it, I went to a town called Twin Falls, Idaho, that was swept up and a lot of false reporting during the summer of 2015 and the lead up to the presidential election, where a sexual assault case involving children and refugees was elevated and was misrepresented as uh, something much larger, much scarier, something that was indicative of Muslims or refugees being inherently dangerous and putting the country at risk. And so this town and this story was written about to an incredible degree for months, and people there were really terrorized by the lies that were spread about them and their city. And so how did you first hear about it? So I read about the case in Twin Falls pretty early on. I think I saw local reporting that said, you know, Breitbart and Infowars and other outlets have been reporting on a sexual assault case here in town. They're saying that it was a gang rape, that the young girl involved in the case was held at knife point, that she was raped by Syrian refugees, but in fact there was no knife and there are no Syrian refugees in this town and there was no gang rape. And those early local stories really struck me and so I started to follow the case and started to talk to people in town and then just kept with it. And so when did you kind of formally start reporting on it then? It's a very extensive piece. (laughs) It is an extensive piece. I started reporting on it back in September, late September, so a full year ago of 2016. And then I went to Twin Falls for the first time, I believe it was December of that year, and then uh, went back two other times. And it's definitely not an easy story to tell. It's it's a pretty complex narrative of a kind of somewhat delicate nature. Um, how did you approach the reporting process for the piece? So it, in terms of reporting, I talked to as many people as I possibly could, which you wouldn't necessarily know if you read the story because I deal with a handful, maybe half a dozen central characters, but I must have talked to, and I, I mean for hours, you know, 50 people in town, and that doesn't include experts, national experts, who I talked to separately. It was really delicate. It was very much kind of a a close-in look at how, how individual people were impacted by something on the internet. And so I felt like I had to just gather as much material as I possibly could to begin with, and then sort of chop it down into the, the elements that I'd gathered that were most telling or most illustrative of stuff that I heard from many other people. And so kind of zooming out a little bit, what was the actual effect that the fake news had on Twin Falls? So in the immediate term, I think people went through a really terrifying six month or so period there where 
people who were the targets of a lot of these fake news stories, they were named. So, so this is the mayor, the county prosecutor, the police chief, people who run the refugee resettlement center there, they were named in these stories. And not only were they named, but their addresses, their email addresses, and their phone numbers were posted on the internet. So they were barraged with incredibly graphic and violent threats, threats to murder them, threats to hurt them and their families. And so, of course, that was very scary for them. They talk about being you know, scared to walk out to their cars after work. They had the police randomly patrolling their homes. The police department was putting plainclothes officers into the crowds at protests. And, um, and, and people say they lost sleep and they were totally consumed by reading these stories, which at the time felt like learning that the entire country was against them, that the entire country thought that they were involved in some sort of cover-up, which is what these fake news stories were reporting. And then beyond people, individuals who were targeted in the stories, I think generally speaking for the city of Twin Falls, anybody who was following the coverage of this story was reading that you know their town was under siege by dangerous terrorists and sexual deviants and and so it really had an impact across the city and then when you talk about today i think people there are still very shaken um, and and feel very aware that this could happen to them again and so as a result specifically the refugee community really feels like they can't make a single mistake that could in any way be construed at, or used against them. And so that's a really difficult way to live. And and I think there's also a bit of awkwardness between people in town now because, you know, in Idaho, generally, culturally, it's, it's a place where you sort of mind your own business and, and that's really valued. But the fight that played out brought people's views out to the fore, brought them out into the open. And, and people realized just how much they disagreed with each other on these issues. And so that's become uncomfortable as well. And there's also a part in the story where you mentioned that local journalists were, were being threatened. What precautions did, did they have to take you know, in the midst of all of this? So the local journalists were, as I mentioned, um, the police department inserted plainclothes officers into protests and they were specifically instructed to keep an eye out for the journalists because journalists were being targeted. Beyond that, I know the editor of the local paper after they received a bomb threat that seemed viable told everyone to, um, to walk out to your cars in pairs and to conduct your interviews outside the office. So they basically locked down the newspaper for a period of months and didn't let in any guests and just made sure that everybody was was watching their back when they were out in the city reporting. And why do you think this this story caught fire the way it did? I think it was a confluence of so many things that were blowing up nationally and it was just it was really a perfect storm you know this was a time when candidate then candidate trump was talking about terrorism linked to islam was talking about refugees on a regular basis and had his base very riled up about this issue you know there's an existing network of activists who for many years have opposed refugee resettlement and have opposed the spread of islam who have their eyes peeled constantly for stories like this anyway. They very often find a story like this and jump on it and repeat it as much as possible. And then and then the megaphone was even larger because of the national political debate that was going on. So I think it was just, it was a matter of, of timing 
um, and people latching on to details that felt substantial enough to create um, to create a really big and scary narrative. And so that's what they did. And why did why did you want to tell the story? I wanted to tell the story for a number of reasons. I think the biggest one is that we all now know about fake news and and know to be cautious when we're reading stories or watching television news now. We know where these stories are coming from. We've read deconstructions of them. We realize that they've been linked to Russia. But we very rarely, if ever, talk about how individual people are impacted by these stories. And, and that just felt really important to me because they very often call out individual people and encourage readers and, and audiences to contact them, and in this case, go after them. And, and that felt like a piece of the fake news, fake news story, if you will, that was missing from the national discussion. And I don't know if you have an answer to this or have any thoughts about it, but how can we work uh, to debunk the spread of misinformation? I think it's really, really hard to do. I mean, I think actually what I learned from this story is that no matter how many mainstream outlets write stories debunking false narratives, you can never fully undo the damage that's done by a false story, either because you can't reach everybody feasibly who who's consumed the false story or because you can't change their mind after they've been told something really terrifying you know that shook them at sort of a a fundamental visceral level so as news outlets as mainstream news outlets i think you know it is important for us to continue to follow uh fake, false stories or stories that are falsely reported or misrepresented and write stories as clearly as we possibly can, as well-researched as we possibly can, not in a tone that's dismissive, um, but in a tone that's that's clarifying. I think that's really important for journalists, but, but I think, unfortunately, the larger message for me, at least, was that it's, it's just nearly impossible to undo all the damage that these stories can, can do. Before we get into our conversation about the week's news, I wanted to tell you about a really cool event that Columbia Journalism Review is hosting down in Atlanta. It's taking place on October 4th and is time to coincide with the release of our fall print issue, which is titled The Year That Changed Journalism. Kyle Pope, CJR's editor and publisher, is going to be joined by some great reporters, including Glenn Thrush, Eric Wemple, Ben Jacobs, and more to talk about the presidency of Donald Trump and how his election has changed journalism. To run through the other stories we've been watching this week, I've got CJR Delacorte fellows Meg Dalton and Karen Ho here with me. Karen, you've got a piece up today about the coverage of Hurricane Maria's aftermath, which is still ramping up but has received criticism for not being as focused as Harvey and Irma coverage. Puerto Ricans, there are 5 million Puerto Ricans in the United States. And what they're saying to uh, journalists who are asking is that there really isn't a lot of media coverage for the 3.5 U.S. residents that are living on the island. They're really concerned about the conditions. They want more news because they know that this changes how the government responds. And they're really questioning why such a huge story with lots of leeway and lots of advance notice about this kind of huge natural disaster, there weren't more resources poured in um, in advance of the storm hitting the island in preparation like there was for Hurricane Irma. 
Right. It's obviously hard to get to Puerto Rico once a disaster has hit and airports have been damaged. Ports are uh, some still not clear. But there has been great reporting on the ground that I thought one of the interesting things in your piece was reporters are actually doing the work of connecting individuals with their families on the mainland. Yeah. Putting aside the larger issue or the question regarding how journalists, whether they should be passive observers regarding a huge breaking news event, it's been really interesting for many of them to realize the resources that they have, whether it be satellite phones, mobile phones capable of taking video, or even using social media channels like Instagram, they have the opportunity to directly connect people on the island with their family and friends abroad, sometimes right away, and sometimes with videos after the fact. Right. Watching the cable news coverage, there's been some really emotional moments of people getting in touch with their families for the first time using the reporter's satellite phones. But speaking of the television coverage, Meg, it hasn't been the kind of blanket wall-to-wall breaking news reports that we saw surrounding Harvey and later Irma. And not just cable news, but um, on front pages of newspapers you know, across the U.S. Um, and there are a few reasons why that could be. There's a, there's a misunderstanding with a lot of Uh, Americans um, regarding the U.S.'s relationship to Puerto Rico. Uh, There is a new study that found that only 54% of Americans know that people born in Puerto Rico are U.S. citizens. And then another reason for uh, for the lack of blanket coverage, too, is that there are so so many um, big stories this week that kind of took over the, the, the narrative of the news cycle. Right. Obviously, there was another collapse of the Republican efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare. But the story that seemed to dominate earlier in the week gets into the second thing we've been watching, which is that Donald Trump decided to pick a fight with the NFL. Uh, We're a little late to this on a Friday, but last weekend, President Trump decided to attack NFL players who have chosen to take a knee in protest of police brutality and racial inequalities at a rally in Alabama. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! I, I gotta say, this is one of the few times uh, I actually care about sports. Uh, so there's that's one thing. Because <laughs> it didn't stick to sports? <laughs> yeah, because it didn't stick to sports. Um, I found myself actually, you know, in the midst of all of this back and forth between Trump and the NFL, Trump and the NBA, et cetera, et cetera, like wanting to watch the games. Well, you and some other people, because ratings were slightly up. Uh, apparently, the boycotts that were threatened online and in other places didn't come through. Um, but this brings up a, another kind of media trope, which is, does Trump use these sort of culture war attacks to distract from larger stories? Obviously, there was a major hurricane hitting Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. There was the impending failure of the Republican health care deal. And there's always Russia stuff going on in the background. So, Karen, do you buy the argument that Trump is playing some sort of four-dimensional chess here and trying to distract media from the real story? Yeah. To me, the real story was the gross level of hypocrisy among his team when they were not just one or two, but six members of, you know, basically people working for the Trump administration right now who are using private email servers. Like, this is so egregious on such a massive level. And 
to many observers working in Washington right now that this sort of blanket nonstop uh, denouncement of the NFL was a huge smokescreen distraction away from, you know, this kind of thing that, you know, they were really banging the drum against uh, Hillary Clinton during the entire campaign. And, you know, that received a lot of media coverage. So I, I think like there were so many things going on that this was like the fourth or fifth story, sometimes even even lower when it came to top 10 reading lists because everybody was talking about the NFL for like more than a week. And, you know, this this week kind of is very emblematic of the one thing Trump is really good at, and that is distraction politics. It's interesting. I, I really I'm torn on this because I totally understand that argument. And I think Trump and others in his administration would rather be fighting a kind of cultural war battle that they feel like they have the support of a majority of Americans or at least the support of the Trumpian base. At the same time, I do think it's a big deal when the chief executive of the country is saying that private citizens who are protesting and lending their voice to a cause should be fired. We talk, we use this word over and over again, but it really is unprecedented. And there's been this discussion of not normalizing what Trump is doing. This is extremely abnormal. So on some level, I get the blanket coverage. Um, I wish that it wasn't coming at the expense of really important discussions about healthcare and the lives of 3.5 million Americans. Um, but I understand where the media may be saying this is a, a major story. It's a salacious story on some level, but it's also an important one. Hopefully that has played itself out. We'll see on Sunday what sort of protests go on. But shifting from one American institution, the NFL, to another American institution on Wednesday night, Hugh Hefner died. Um, Meg, I saw you tweeting about this and you pulled together a story of some of the journalistic impacts that Hefner had. We'll leave aside his kind of complex legacy that we could go on and on about. But why do we care about it as journalists? Yeah, one of the, the you know uh, common phrases I keep seeing around the internet today and last night was that I read it for the articles. And so I, you know, I actually do read it for the articles. Um, and so sure. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, no matter your personal feelings towards towards the man or the work that he's done, um, Hefner did print a lot of you know, serious journalism over the what is it, sixty plus years of Playboy's existence. Um, there were some amazing interviews back in its early days um, by Alex Haley, who went on to write Roots. Um, you know, he interviewed Malcolm X and MLK and uh, Miles Davis. Some really extensive, like wonderful, wonderful interviews. Um, if you're interested, you can check it out oh, on yeah. CJR.org. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wrote a story about this. <laughs> uh, I forgot because it was today. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just the interviews. There's also some great pieces of long-form journalism. There's some incredible fiction. Um, so whatever we might think Hefner's legacy is in terms of the objectification of women. Um, he launched the careers of, you know, Taffy Brodesser Ackner acknowledged that she got her first celebrity profile in Playboy. And I think from the business side, you really have to think about people make fun of BuzzFeed all the time regarding how they fund their long form investigative journalism. And Playboy, you know, for all of the criticism, it had a model that enabled people to travel, to write really long, to do these great pieces of work. And that is a model that is really under attack and can't be replicated right now. It's 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 facing a lot of problems. And it's interesting that, you know, with this death, what it marks in terms of American magazines. Yeah, along with the 
departure of several top editors, which we've talked about before, and the impending sale of Rolling Stone, it is certainly the end of an era. Finally, some fun stories. Uh, Karen, I think you and I have the same favorite story, which is that Twitter, uh, our favorite social media platform, is trying to ruin what makes it great, which is brevity, by doubling the length of tweets for certain users from 140 characters to 280. And you got a golden ticket, so how does it feel to have that much power? (laughs) I mean, it's really awesome. I won't lie. I got all these jokes about being the Twitter elite. I mean... The funny thing about it is I don't have a lot of followers. I have a lot of friends who have many more. Uh, I joked in a meeting that it was because I have a high amplification ratio, which means <laughs> you don't necessarily have a lot of followers, but there are a lot of great people who follow you that could send it out to easily a million or you know 20,000 of their followers. And so something can go viral. If you tweet something really good, it can go viral within half an hour. The other thing is a great point that was brought up is like it's fun to have this power, right? Like I can write essays or I linked to I think a really long list of 15 or 20 journalists of color the other day and you know that would have taken two tweets instead. I think you don't have to use it. You know, there are already people who are muting people who use this. And the thing about brevity is that as a woman of color, I'm worried about, you know, death threats or harassment at, at twice the length that it used to be. But it is a really great resource for journalists to think about if you want to include more information or context that this was always a problem or you had to make these terrible grammatical errors in order to fit everything into one message. And so it's really about it's a tool. You don't have to use it all the time. And just thinking about the right time to use it so that you're not just tweeting out terrible jokes is a really good opportunity, and it will set people apart in the next couple of weeks. Well, that was a a really thoughtful response that I'm going to set aside to gripe. Maybe it's just sour grapes. Uh, But the thing I love about Twitter is that it's short, that it requires brevity. There was a, a good piece on Pointer kind of comparing 140 characters to one of those arbitrarily assigned yet perfect measurements, like 90 feet to first base or 14 lines for a sonnet. Twitter had this perfect formula, and they screwed it up. Instead of giving us an edit button, instead of you know getting Nazis off the platform, they have decided to say, you know what you really didn't know you wanted was longer tweets. And I'm pissed about it. Maybe it's because I didn't get the 280 characters. But that's probably thing- <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's be honest. That's probably why. I would definitely have <laughs> feel differently if uh, I was one of the Twitter elite, but. Until everybody gets it, in which case it won't be special, we'll all just sit here being jealous of Karen. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. As always, please go check out the great content we've got up at cjr.org. I also want to thank Caitlin Dickerson for taking the time to speak with Meg. We'll have a link to her incredible story about Twins Falls, Idaho, which you should definitely carve out some time to read. And I want to plug a story in our upcoming magazine that's really similar by Nina Berman about the victims of fake news around the country. It's a really great piece. There are lots of really great pieces in the magazine, so keep your eye out for that. We'll see you next week.